As we come to the Lord's table today, uh, let us consider uh, very briefly, and, and remember this is one of the two sacraments that the Lord has given to his church. He's ordained it for his church. There are only two sacraments personally instituted by Christ. And let's just very briefly be reminded what a sacrament is from the Shorter Catechism. So the question 92, what is a sacrament? And the answer is, a sacrament is an holy ordinance, a good translation of sacrament, instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs, signs that you can see, smell, feel, etc., Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. So there's two main parts to that, signs and seal. The two main parts of, of, of both sacraments, of the sacrament of baptism and of the Lord's table, sign and seal. So the sacraments, both baptism and the Lord's table, are a sign, represent or signify, make a sign of spiritual truths. That's the sign part of it. And then secondly, the sacrament, with all that it signifies in that sign, constitutes a seal or a pledge or a promise of the covenanted grace of God that's revealed in the sacrament. Now that second part about seal, we'll look at another time. What we're looking at today is the outward sign. And what is that outward sign, the sign that we're looking at? Well, in the case of the Lord's table, it includes not only the visible elements that we see that are being used. Well, they're covered at the moment, but they will be uncovered shortly. So those, the visible elements of bread and wine, but it is also inherent. It's not something we do here. But it is inherent in the understanding of the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the wine. Not just the bread and the wine or the fruit of the vine. But it is the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the wine. And then the taking of the bread and the wine, the consuming of it, the, the, the taking it into yourself and of doing this in communion with other believers. And these are all the signs. These are all things that are signified by what we do together. And they all have a meaning. They, they point to various spiritual truths. And as I've just said, we hope in the coming time to look at what it is meant by the seal. How these are, another word is used, the sealing ordinances. The, uh, the sacraments. But however, for this morning, as the Lord is pleased to help us, I would... I'd like just to have a simple and a brief examination of those basic truths, and I've just uh, gone through uh, those uh, four or five, uh, of the symbolism that's to be found in the Lord's Supper. And that is the title of the message this morning, The Symbolism of the Lord's Table. The Symbolism of the Lord's Table. And firstly, and we're not coming to John 15 yet. That'll be our third point. Firstly, the supper is a symbolical representation. You could say this is a sign of the Lord's death. The Lord's 
table. The Lord's Supper is a symbolical representation of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have that uh, shown very clearly in the words of institution in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 26. The reason why we do it, the reason why we gather in together. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. It is, again, the very heart, the very core, the very central and glorious fact of redemption of Christ dying for his people is understood in the table. We show the Lord's death till he come. We show his body broken. We show his blood poured out. We see this sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ um, as a sacrifice. It is, it is the sacrifice that redeems. It's the sacrifice that we need. And that sacrifice that we have on the cross that is expressed here as well, including all suffering before the cross, was uh, prefigured, of course, in the Old Testament. It was pointed out there are many signposts in the Old Testament that are pointing uh, to this one uh, sacrifice of Christ. And there are many sacrifices in the Old Testament because there are many aspects to Christ sacrificing himself. Why he did it, for which reason. And it's not only the aspect of propitiation. Remember, the propitiation is wrath-removing, a wrath-removing sacrifice that pleases God. Very simply said, God's wrath is appeased. So we have that aspect of all, most Old Testament uh, sacrifices. There's also the aspect of expiation. And these are technical terms, but you'll, you'll remember propitiation is used in the Scriptures, and expiation is understood in that word, because part of that sacrifice is expiation, which is payment for sin. So one aspect of it removes the wrath, and the other pays for the sin. And if you've read the book of Leviticus, then you should be familiar with a number of the Old Testament sacrifices. But again, these sacrifices are all pointing to Christ upon the cross and the death which he suffered, a sacrificial death. And so if you go to Leviticus and you read through them and elsewhere in the, in the law of Moses, we know that there is a morning and evening sacrifice in the tabernacle and then the temple. Christ is that morning and evening sacrifice because Christ is our daily sacrifice because for us who believe on him his death has an eternal worth he is always our sacrifice he is ever there sacrificed for us ever ever in heaven presenting that sacrificial blood before the lord so christ is the morning and the evening sacrifice christ is also the atoning sacrifice he has made atonement for all of his people Christ is the whole burnt offering. For Christ was fully consumed by God's wrath for all our sins. Christ is also the libation 
What is a libation? The, the pouring out of a, of a drink offering. Because he was poured out for us. Christ is also the meat offering, the food offering. Because he is the food for our souls. He is the finest of the wheat. He is the oil of anointing. He is uh, the incense for prayer. Or the incense of prayer. Christ is also that, that peace offering, that fellowship offering that we read of. He is the Prince of Peace. And he brings everlasting peace between us and God. And to obtain our peace, the Prince of Peace was broken and died. And Christ is our sin offering. Christ is also our trespass offering. And he is the only payment that we have for sin and for transgression. And Christ is also our offering for those sins that we committed in ignorance or have entirely forgotten. There is that sin in the, there is that sacrifice in the law for the sins that he knoweth not, but there is a sacrifice for them. And Christ has our crimes covered in spite of a sinful memory, in spite uh, of an inability to repent of each sin individually and going back in time and not remembering them, the Lord has it all covered. So what if there's a sin? What if there's a, what if there's a, a period in your life and you can't remember it for whatever reason and you know that you sinned, you know you did wicked things? The Lord has it covered. And Christ is also the heave offering. The heave offering, the, the, the offering that's lifted up because Christ himself was lifted up between earth and heaven to be the sacrificed mediator to restore the broken fellowship between God and man, as it were, in his body upon the cross, holding up to heaven, as it were, and, and being fixed upon earth to bring us in atoning love and reconciliation with God. There's so many details that we could go into in there, but that is not our point. It's to understand that Christ and him on the cross and his death, his broken body and his shed blood, is, points to so many of the truths and so many of the effects of those sacrifices in the Old Testament which means Christ is the Passover lamb, which we have looked at before. Christ is the scapegoat. Christ is the red heifer. Christ is these, these special sacrifices that we read of to cleanse, to bring peace between God and man. Christ is the entire sacrificial system in himself, in his humanity, in his humanity. And he fulfilled each and every one upon the cross of Golgotha. All of it in him. He sacrificed for our sins. He was sacrificed for our guilt. He was sacrificed for our curse. And he was sacrificed in our place. And he had to be because he was the only sacrifice that would be pleasing to God. If we had been crucified, if we had hung on a cross, what would we have been like? We would have died like the unrepentant thief. We would have died in our sins and with no peace with God. 
But because Christ died in our place, we may die like the repentant thief who died in Christ. And that is the great dividing line in, 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 in humanity. Those that die in their sin and those that by God's grace die in Christ. And so Christ, as we look at this table, as we try to understand something of the symbols, what we have before us, is that Christ is set forth as the broken sacrifice in his broken body and the poured out libation of his life and blood. The blood and the life, really one and the same thing. And therefore Christ we can say with the words of the apostle in 1 Corinthians or with the words of Christ, Christ is broken for you and Christ is shed for many. And therefore the bread is broken for you and the cup poured out for you that you may be reminded, that you may be assured, that you may be built up, that you may be fed spiritually by God's grace. So the supper is a symbolical representation of the Lord's death. Secondly, the supper symbolizes the believer's participation in the crucified Christ. The supper symbolizes, this is a symbol of our participation in Christ and him crucified that we have an interest in him, that we have a share in him, that we are part of him, that we are found in him and he in us. That's the second important uh, point that we have to understand the symbolism of the table. It's a very, well, the other one was, the first point was quite personal. This is also very personal. Because in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, when the worthy participants um, eat and drink, you do not merely look at the symbols. Yes, we see them with our eyes, we, 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 we receive them, we, we, we feed on them, but it is Christ, figuratively, spiritually, by faith. We must understand that this is Christ, and not to the extreme that the Roman Catholic Church goes. It's a symbol of Christ. And yet, the Lord says, as he brings that, the life to the symbol, in John 6 and verse 53, then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. So the symbol is still a symbol. It's still bread and it's still um, uh, wine, still grape juice. And yet the Lord says and unites himself so clearly uh, to those symbols that he will use language like this, which is, as I said, the Roman Catholics and even the Lutherans have, have taken too literally because he sat at the table with a complete body. A whole body did not take, take a chunk of his own flesh, but he broke the bread which symbolized that which he was yet to do upon the cross. But it's not just an empty symbol. It's not just a piece of bread. <clears throat> in the sense that there is a spiritual truth to it <clears throat> that is then translated into gracious blessing. So firstly then, <clears throat> as we're considering those elements, think of his body. 
that we are his body. We are part of his body, the mystical body of Christ. And how do we become part of the body <coughs> of Christ? Well, that's by the gift of faith. We're given a gift of faith at the rebirth. It's worked in us. The, the confessional standards speak of that, the Holy Spirit working it. So here we have a, have a soul that is full of sin and unbelief and is dead to fellowship with God. And then the Holy Spirit comes and works faith in it, renews the will, makes that desire to have the sins forgiven, to look unto Jesus. And there is repentance and faith. As the first exhibits or the first expressions of that new life. And that gift of faith, worked in us by the Spirit of Christ, unites us to Christ. And so then we're understanding something when we're thinking of his body and we're thinking of the bread. We're thinking of our body and his body and the union that we have. It shows us then the unity that we have by faith, and this is the link, expresses that link. The, faith, the unity that the redeemed have with the Redeemer. So he hasn't come and redeemed us and then, as it were, uh, left us to ourselves. But he has united us to him. And as we consider, continue to consider the body, and when I say the body, I'm speaking of the bread. And as we are the very cause of the suffering, the pain, the brokenness, and the death, of Jesus Christ for there's no other reason why he went to the cross except to pay for the sins of his people to hang in our place as the only sacrifice acceptable to God as we are the cause of all that suffering so we take Christ as it were into our mouths and we chew we chew upon him we break his body in our mouths so we are reminded or should be, or can be even today, of the suffering for our sins. He suffered for me. And his suffering is for me. It is for my new spiritual life. It is for my new spiritual nourishment. And as we swallow that broken body, it symbolizes Christ entering into us. His sacrificed body entering into us, becoming a personal thing for us. And so by faith, his sacrifice is personally ours. And his body becomes part of our body. And he abides in us, and we abide in him. This is the symbolism. This, of course, just partaking of a sacrament does nothing for the unbeliever. Nothing good anyway. And we'll look at that as we come to a close Point to the third point. But as we've read, that if ye abide in me and, and I in you, ye shall bear much fruit. Well, this is the symbol of it. That I have taken to myself that the person and the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus has become mine. And I've taken him in and we've examined some of those things already. So we have his body, the bread, and then we have his blood, the wine, the cup. And when we think of the life of Christ, the life of Christ is poured out in his shed blood. The, the life is poured out, his, his blood is poured out. 
And likewise, that blood of Jesus, the life of Jesus, is poured out into our soul. It's poured out into us that don't deserve any of this. The sweet and blessed unity of Christ for his own people. And it's not only that we drink the libation of his blood, represented uh, by the fruit of the vine, but we're taking into our innermost being, into the the depth of who we are, into our soul, that life-giving blood of Christ. And what does that blood do? What has that blood done? And again, the, the emphasis is on the symbol, and what the symbol points to is that blood has come in and cleansed us of our sin, cleanses of our deepest sin, the, the sin that we have in the depth of our soul and in our heart. His blood cleanses. And the blood, what does it do as well? The blood of the cup, as it cleanses our soul, it refreshes us. As a drink is refreshing, as a, as a, as a drink gives that help, it refreshes us and it renews our life. And the blood of the new covenant then becomes part of who we are in Christ. It becomes part of us. That that drink becomes part of our own body. And we become part of Christ and Christ is in us. It's the blood of the new covenant. And so reminding us that the covenant, the new covenant, the covenant of grace into which we've been brought that we are now his covenant people. This is a sign of the covenant, even the wine. And that wine, that blood was bought. We were bought with a price, a, a hefty price, a price that is truly beyond our comprehension. Although we may understand to some degree uh, what that price was, the, the suffering and the death, and yet the true value of it is beyond our comprehension. And therefore, we must hear the gospel regularly. We must must, uh, partake uh, fairly regularly. And we must do it with knowledge uh, that we may may take to ourselves uh, the blessings and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the true believer then who can worthily eat, who can worthily eat and drink, at the table of the Lord, what, what, what does then these symbols mean of bread and wine? Symbolically, then, the believer takes to himself, he appropriates, as it were, he, he obtains all the benefits that have been secured by the sacrificial death of Christ. It's mine. The Lord has given it to me. And the Lord is mine, and I am his and his broken body and his shed blood, his, his sacrifices and his libations and his death is my life, is my cleansing, is my strength. And he abides in me. God give me grace that I may abide in him. So the supper we've seen is a symbolical representation of the Lord's death. It is also symbolizes the believer's participation in the crucified Christ. There's much more we could have gone into in that, but we won't for the sake of time. Thirdly, the supper represents the effect of this act of faith. It represents the effect of this act of faith. For not only is Christ and the death of Christ the object of our faith, 
But the very act of faith, as I've already pointed out, the very act of faith, the very fact that we believe is that which unites us to Christ. And when we have a true saving faith, a true saving faith, a faith that has been wrought in us by the Holy Spirit, then it has true effects. There are true effects to be seen in that true saving faith. So we see the, the, the effect of life. Life is given. New life is given. The effect of giving strength and the effect of giving joy and all these things of regarding the soul. And this is, this is clearly implied in the emblems used at the Lord's table. We've touched on some of this, but this is the point of it. Just as bread and wine that nourish and invigorate the bodily life of man, and so Christ quickens and sustains the life of the soul, and, and, and we need all that Christ would give us. Hence, the insistence of the word uh, that we forsake not the gathering together of ourselves, because in the gathering together of ourselves, we come under the means of grace. The means of grace, prayer, uh, the word, read, the preaching, singing, praying, are the main, the main and ordinary means of grace that the Lord grants. And, and therefore we need all that Christ can give us that we would, that we would have bear fruit, that we would have that life, that we'd have that strength, and we would have that joy. And, and these are some of the, the things that we look to when we come to the table, that we might have something uh, for our own soul, because just like we need food and drink for our physical bodies, we, we need the bread and the wine, else Christ had not given it to us. We need the bread and the wine. We need these elements. We need all of Christ, that we be fed, that we would grow in grace. We need his word. We need his grace. We need his spirit. And under his word, we understand those means of grace I've just mentioned. Otherwise, we would not have fruit. We would not bear fruit. As the Lord said in John uh, 15 and verse 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. Else we would not have the fruit of repentance and we would not have the fruit of uh, the Spirit. And so the symbols then of taking Christ into us as a means of grace will also affect a change in our life, as I've mentioned. We have that, 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 that strengthening, that help. The bad fruit of our sinful nature will be diminished. And good fruit of our new nature will increase that we may bear much fruit. This is what the world Lord says. And I in him the same bringeth forth much fruit. The Lord wants much fruit. And without Christ we can do nothing. And without Christ we can bear no fruit. And so no matter how often you partake of the supper, as I've said, it does the unbeliever no good, and he or she will bear no fruit. And so there will be no peace, no long-suffering, no gentleness, no goodness, no faith, no meekness, and no temperance. And if you bear none of these fruits, then, then you are not of Christ. And there we have the warning of the, the, the table 
then you are eating and drinking unworthily and eating and drinking damnation to yourself. More of that when we come to the fencing of the table. So it's this supper, a symbol of Christ's death, let's make this shorter, symbolizes the believer's participation participation in the crucified Christ. This supper represents the effect of the act of faith. And fourthly and finally, the supper represents the union of believers. We've already talked of, of one union, of the union with the Lord Jesus Christ. But the table also represents a second important union, and that is the union of believers, the fellowship of believers, one with another. If we are all individually, those who truly believe, uh, members of the mystical body of Jesus Christ, we're all united with him. And yet together, we're united uh, together. We, we, as children are of the parents, they are all individually children of the of of a, of a parent or of the parents, but together they form a family, and they are brethren and sisters together. And so we have that 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 that, that vertical unity, but we also have a horizontal horizontal unity. And so we have that spiritual unity that is represented the body of Christ, the parts and the members, one with another of one body. And therefore at the table they eat of the same bread and drink of the same wine, as we read in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 17. For we being many are one body, or one bread, sorry, for we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. And 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. So here is the, as it were, should be the great leveler, that we who are redeemed sinners have nothing to boast against and over each other. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None is righteous, no, not one. No one is worthy of the grace of God. No one deserves the grace of God. Well, then it would not be grace. And yet by grace, God has willingly and lovingly saved all of his people to become together one people, united by Christ and united in Christ. And therefore, anything that works against that unity of Christ is not of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment, that there is unity. But unity itself among sinful humans, even redeemed sinful humans, is a miracle of grace, that there can be any unity because Christ's people are of, of absolute different backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, uh, different families, different ideas, different status in life, different abilities, different gifts, different degrees of wealth or poverty, and yet all 
are to be united in love for Christ and united in love towards each other. And those two things, united in love for Christ, united in love towards each other, in many ways fulfills that aspect of the table. None of us have deserved salvation. The Lord has been merciful and gracious to all of us whom he has saved. None of us can glory in ourselves, but we must boast and glory in Christ. He has been gracious to me, a sinner. He has been gracious to you, a sinner. He has been gracious to you, a sinner. And then we come as the redeemed of the Lord, together, united as the undeserving redeemed of the Lord, together to commemorate the Lord's death till he come. And that unity, there's an old Dutch reformed form that they use for the communion table. And there's one part of it that speaks of that unity and brings it to the elements of the table. It says, For as out of many grains one meal, one flour is ground, and from that one bed is, bread is baked, and out of many grapes being pressed together, one wine floweth and mixeth itself together, so shall we all, who by a true faith are engrafted into Christ, be altogether one body. Through brotherly love, for Christ's sake, our beloved Savior, who hath so exceedingly loved us, and not only showed this in word, but also in very deed toward another, toward one another. That's a very poetical, that's a very uh, a true thing that has been said there. As we consider the bread and the grains, we think of the, uh, the, the, the juice, the, the, the wine and the grapes, of all many different grains and all many different berries. But just as they are brought together, big grains, small grains, maybe cracked grains, all brought together, all milled together, forming that one loaf. And the same with the berries of the, of the grape, all brought together and made in one, into one wine. And in that form of unity, as we understand the unity in the bread itself and the unity in the wine itself, I should point to the unity that is to be striven for, is to be prayed for, is to be worked for, to the glory of Jesus, the King of one people, the King of one kingdom. So we've seen that the supper is a symbolic representation of Christ's death. It symbolizes our participation in Christ crucified. It represents the effect of the act of faith and finally represents the union of believers. May the Lord help us to reflect on these truths as we come uh, to now the Lord's table. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that thou would have mercy upon us and help us now as we come to the table of the Lord to look unto Jesus and to consider these matters of his, of his death and our appropriation of that death and the bearing of fruit having believed on his death and his life 
and that fellowship that we have one with another, that we, by God's grace, may be called the children of God, the people of Christ. So help us, we pray, at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to the table, we will sing from Psalm 61. Psalm 61. 51. Psalm 51. After thy loving kindness, Lord, have mercy unto me. For thy compassions great blot out all mine iniquity. We remain seated as we sing verses 1 to 3, please.